As we said last week, we were focusing on the external threats. And external threats, let's face it, external threats are kind of exciting, right? I was raised a gamer. Three years old, my parents had a Commodore 64, and uh, I know, right? And uh, uh, I was playing video games from the word go. Uh, still like them. And I will tell you, every video game that you play, the threat is always external. The threat is always visible. Those are the threats that it's easy to identify. I can see an external threat coming, usually. I can react to an external threat. And the contention with these threats is kind of fun. It's kind of uplifting for me to overcome something else. But of course, those aren't the only things that we contend with. Those aren't the only things that we struggle with, even just in normal day-to-day life. There are internal threats. There are things inside of us that threaten us. Just as much as a soldier might threaten you, Outside, a man with a gun, an external threat, cancer might live inside of you, be growing there, and be posing just as significant or even more significant of a threat because you can't reason with it. It's something that's in there. It's something a little insidious because some days you might be feeling fine. One day you might be feeling great. Get up, you go to the doctor, it's a routine checkup. And surprise, you are now going to have to go through something agonizing. You might be about to go through something terminal. We acknowledge these struggles. We acknowledge that these exist, and we even try to talk about them the same way that we talk about the external struggles, right? We talk about, we, when somebody has cancer, we say that they have a battle with cancer, a courageous battle with cancer. But we never really follow through with those analogies, right? We we acknowledge that there's something different when the enemy is ourselves, when the enemy is inside of us. Nobody ever, you know, on, on, on passing away from cancer, you never hear it said he had a brave battle with cancer, but then at the end he died like a coward, right? Like you never talk about it in those ways. We separate the external threats from the internal threats. And that makes them a little bit more difficult for us to contend with. It's hard for us to look inside and see what's there. Imagine that you're on the operating table, right? And uh, you're, you've been laid out and you've been given your anesthetics and you're just starting to go under. The doctor is is cutting you open. You you don't feel it. You're nice and drugged up. He cuts you open. It looks inside, and just as your eyes are closing, the last thing that you hear is, oh, it's just so gross in here, and then you go to sleep, right? This is the worst thing that you would want to hear, right? It's objectively true, right? When we look inside of ourselves, we are going to see a lot of really gross kind of things. It's hard to take a look in there, but If you want to diagnose something, if you want to say, this is something that is wrong, this is something that needs correcting, this is something with which I struggle, you need to be ready to take those internal looks. And oftentimes, those are the hardest ones to take. When we take a look at our reading for today from uh, the book of Romans, we see Paul encouraging exactly that kind of look. He directs our thoughts inward. 
and points out some of the barriers that we pose to ourselves. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. That word unspiritual, that's an awkward translation, but the, the, if we were more literal with it, it would be even more awkward. The word that uh, you could really most accurately translate it, fleshy, right? So the law is spiritual. I'm all fleshy, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell, within, dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do, do it, but the sin in me, living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Let's start off right at the start here, uh, because he he shows us something that sometimes we don't necessarily address, and it goes right to the core of us looking inside and seeing how gross we are, right? We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshy. There's a difference between what the law is and what I am. You know, there's a difference between what is right, the things that are good, and, there's a diff- and, bet- and me, who's this thing, sold as a slave to sin. How fully corrupt am I? I don't even understand what I do. Uh, There's a whole genre video on YouTube. Maybe you've seen it. It's it's a schadenfreude-laden genre of celebrity apology videos. Have you ever heard of this? This kid dressed up as a celebrity apology video for Halloween, okay? They always contain the same features. There's crying. There's excuse-making, and then always you will hear this line. I'm sure you've heard this line in your life. It just wasn't me. That's not me. I can see that people are saying all of these things about me, but that's not me. And our natural inclination is to say, well, yeah, that is you. I just saw a video of you doing that. I just heard an audio recording. Clearly it is you. But they look at it. And they identify that the person that they see inside, the person that they want to be, where their will is, is not the thing that came out, is not the thing that acted that way. We see it with kids. The most common answer that I get when I ask my kids why they did something really odd is... I don't know. Surely any, every parent in here has had this happen, right? The kid had a marker in their nose. Why did you have the marker in your nose? I don't know. Why did you break the marker off in your nose? I don't know. There's all sorts of I don't knows, and you know what? As frustrating as that is to hear, it's probably true. They probably don't know. It probably is a mystery. We don't understand why we do 
what we do. Objectively, it doesn't make sense. There's no impediment to me doing good. If I want to do something good, if I choose to do something good, what's going to stop me? The government's not going to stop me, right? They want me doing good, right? Other people aren't going to stop me. They want me doing good. So why does it not occur? It seems like a giant mystery. That mystery gets answered a little bit in our verses. Our verses highlight that inside of us are two utterly mutually exclusive, combative pieces. For I have the desire to do what is good. Jesus, by his sacrifice, by his goodness, has planted something new in me, something that does want to do God's will. A new man, the man that existed before Adam. I have in myself Christ, and Christ is only good. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Deep inside of me, a part of me, is the desire to see the good things of God done. Simultaneously, there's this other thing. When I do evil, it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. Look how crazy mutually exclusive these things see. That is in my sinful nature. It is sin that lives in me that does it. Evil is right there with me. One of the most difficult concepts for me to communicate with uh, first-year students is exactly this tension, that they are wholly and completely evil. And at the same time, God works something good in them, that inside of us there is a constant perpetual struggle. We are, I don't want to say schizophrenic or split personality, but we do have that kind of a pull that's going on inside of us. And if that's not slavery, I don't know what is. That's the ultimate kind of slavery. I have a will. I want to do things. I want to be good. And I can't. It's not my will that's being worked. Instead, it's sin in me. And that means... It owns me. One of the most irritating excuses that you can ever hear is the devil made me do it. People use that excuse to try to duck responsibility for the things that they do. You should not accept this excuse when it comes up. And at the same time, we also have to acknowledge inside of us is a slave driver that prevents us from doing the good that we would do. It's a little creepy to think that sin, the devil, is basically a hand inside of us forcing us to do what we don't want to do. Almost to make it feel like a puppet master, and that's not entirely inaccurate. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. 
We want to work good. We want to do things in this world that make it a better place, that make it a beautiful place. And yet, sometimes the harder we try and the more that we focus on it, the more apparent it becomes that we haven't done the beautiful thing that we wanted, uh, that we wanted to do. I was going to show one of my own family Pinterest fails, but I decided not to humiliate ourselves that way. Last week, uh, uh, Pastor Krause brought something up. He brought up when Paul was talking about a thorn in his flesh. Do you remember talking about this? The thorn in his flesh was something that actually he, he came to like, that he came to uh, look to as something that would, uh, that would actually be a source of strength. I don't want to uh, uh, rehash old ground, but I do want us to think about this thorn for a minute. That is a thorn in the flesh. There's absolutely no reason that we wouldn't think that this was something that was inside him, an internal challenge, something that was pulling him back, a temptation, a physical limitation, something that prevented him from doing all the good that he wished he could do. He says, when he prayed to God to take it away, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. Something that turns your head and puts it onto Christ makes you stronger. There's a distinction here that exists. Last week, uh, uh, Krause, uh, or Pastor Krause correctly identified that a cross is something that you carry as a Christian, right? There are special trials that you are going to have to endure in this world because you are a Christian, but there are other sufferings, there are other things inside of us, inside of our lives, that can still achieve the same effect, that still have a way of being used by God as a tool to drive us to him. These thorns in our flesh can make us lean harder on God. And part of that comes from simply appreciating what is happening when God reaches out to us with grace and works something new in us. Uh, I was talking before about uh, how uh, uh, you go to the doctor and you might feel fine, get bad news, and now you're on the road to something that's painful and horrible. I had a, a very dear friend of mine uh, who uh, was struggling with some serious mental issues. Uh, his mental state was declining really quite sharply. He went to the doctor. The doctor gave him medication. When he would take the medication, he wouldn't quite be back to normal, but he was fully functional again. He could have meaningful, healthy relationships again. He could hold down a job again. The medication helped him to function once again. It gave him back his life in so many ways but it made him sick, and it made him feel like garbage. He didn't like taking it. 
And so eventually he started looking for excuses to not take it. He'd find reasons to lose it. He'd accidentally flush his bottle of pills down the toilet, right? And as this would happen, his mental state would once again crumble. Physically, he might feel a little bit better. He might feel less queasy. But at the same time, it was ruining his life. When we deal with struggles or when we deal with crosses, oftentimes we can say, oh man, do I ever not want to go through with this. I will confess to you that I have personally prayed a prayer where it's like, Lord, I would really like to be sanctified, but please don't smack me around while that's happening, okay? I want to be sanctified and comfortable at the same time. What a stupid prayer to pray, right? Uh, and and it's totally, it reflects a total level of ignorance about what sin is and what sin does to me. I cannot sin to my benefit. No matter what, anytime you commit a sin, anytime you break any commandment, it's never going to be good for you. It's never going to be helpful for you. God didn't give us the Ten Commandments because they were so nice for him. He gave Ten Commandments because those were things that we just ought to be doing. Those are things that were good for us. It should be common sense that murder is not going to help you get ahead, that theft is not going to help you get ahead. We convince ourselves that the pain inflicted by these sins is less than the pain that's inflicted by the cure. And sometimes when that cure hits, and hits hard and causes pain. It's taking away far more pain than we had in the first place. The mechanism for that is how we shoveled our pain off onto our Savior. Our sin necessitated something horrible. We were separate from God. And fundamentally, there is no greater agony than that separation. If we wanted the medicine, it had to come from somewhere, and it came from our Savior. He was the one who took the cross that we had earned. He died on it. And from that, he delivered into us that new man, that good part of us, that thing that contends with our evil. I want to present sort of maybe a weird, different way of thinking about carrying our crosses. I'm going to suggest to you that no matter what, you always have a cross that you're carrying, even if you're an unbeliever. Now, let me clarify that just a little bit, okay? Because A cross that we bear as Christians is something that only Christians do, right? Those are the sufferings and struggles that we have because we are believers, because we are on the side of God in a world that's at enmity with him. But if you are an unbeliever, if you are without Christ, you still have a cross that you're carrying. It's the cross that you earned, When we look at Jesus on the cross, we see what our future was supposed to be. 
we see all of the pain that our sins deserved. We see all the pain that the sins we're going to inflict on ourselves. Ooh, what did I do there? This was our inevitable future. Christ took it away instead. No Christ, you're still carrying that cross. And it's pressing you down and dragging you and will eventually crush you through the ground into hell. But what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We took that cross that was going to kill us, that every time we sinned smacked us, and we took it and we put it on Jesus' shoulders. And in exchange, he gave us the cross that we carry as Christians. This is a cross that accomplishes good things. It functions in kind of the same way as that previous cross does. We walk forward with our two selves, my new man and my old man. And as I walk, that cross crushes my old Adam. It presses down on those things that held me back. It hurts the things that hurt me so that my new man stands taller, stands straighter, is freer, can do more. When I lean on Christ in weakness, I find strength. Let's take this back one last time to just the common sufferings of, uh, of life. We'll take it away from these uh, crosses that we bear as Christians and just think about what it is that we go through uh, in this world. Oftentimes, the lives that we have can also be the sources of some of these drags, right? Some of these things that, that pull us and, and hold us back. When we talk about greed, most often, the thing that we think about is somebody who's rich. And somebody, he's, he got a cigar, and he's in a dark room, and he's like, hey, how can I rip people off, right? Like, when we think about greed, it's a particularly evil type of image that we get. And I know a great many rich people, and many of them are greedy. However, I also know a great many poor people, and many of them are greedy. Having the thing or not having the thing doesn't really matter. It still can be a struggle that's there. There's a very uh, uh, famous account uh, of Mr. Rogers. For those of you who are very young, this is Mr. Rogers. He is an epic world hero, and you need to watch some of his shows. Uh, but uh, I, I, I spend like three class periods in Intro to Mass Media just talking about Mr. Rogers. Uh, Mr. Rogers is epic. There's this very big account of uh, him where he was hanging out with a little boy who had extremely severe uh, physical problems. And he's sitting and he's talking with the boy and they're, and they're getting along and everything is going very well. And it's time for them to say goodbye. And Mr. Rogers says something to him. He says, I was wondering if you would do me a favor. And the little boy says, yeah, absolutely, anything. And Mr. Rogers says, would you pray for me? And at first, the boy is kind of flummoxed. This is not something that he's accustomed to hearing. He's disabled. His whole life has been spent with other people praying for him. And now here's Mr. Rogers, the next closest thing to Jesus himself, right? Asking him if he would pray for him. And he did. And he continued praying for him. The whole rest of his life, every day, he included Mr. Rogers. 
uh, in his prayers. When uh, Mr. Rogers left, there was kind of a guy who was trying to psychoanalyze uh, everything that Mr. Rogers was doing. He says to him, that was really smart of you, you know, uh, to give some control and power back to that kid. Mr. Rogers looked at him with kind of surprise, and he was like, no, 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 no. I didn't do that for him. I did that for me. Look at everything that that boy has gone through and has faith. Look how hard his life is. Look at how much weakness there's been. Imagine how close to God he must be. When we say, when I am weak, then I am strong, it doesn't have to be just for the crosses that we bear, although in our lives of sanctification, that's certainly where it's most pronounced. Our weakness, when it causes us to turn to God, when we look to Him to fill in the holes, drag us up, make us new, make us eternal, make us whole, then we are strong. The weaknesses in our lives can be the conduits through which God gives us the strength to carry our crosses all the way to our heavenly home. Amen.